I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. Hey, how you doing, listeners? Adam Buxton here. I'm on a night walk. Usually I would be walking with Rosie, my best dog friend, during the day. But I left everything too late today. I've been at my computer and I went to see my daughter playing netball. And so the walk slot got pushed back. This is interesting stuff, isn't it? You're welcome. And now it's dark. It's a little bit scary. I've got my head torch on. Rosie's up ahead. And I can only tell that she's there because every now and again I see two points of light shining at me from the gloom. And that lets me know that she's okay. Let me just check. Rosie! There she is. Wow, that's quite freaky. (laughs) They just suddenly illuminate like little mini headlamps in the dark when she turns around. Anyway, welcome to podcast number 63A, which features a conversation with director Paul Thomas Anderson. I should say up front that this is not an interview uh, about Paul's many wonderful films, which of course include Boogie Nights, Punch Drunk Love, Magnolia, The Master, and Inherent Vice. Although we do talk a little bit about Daniel Day-Lewis's performance in There Will Be Blood, and in Paul's latest multi-Oscar-nominated feature, Phantom Thread. Uh, For slightly more straightforward film chat with Paul, I would recommend his appearance on Mark Commode and Simon Mayo's film review podcast, which was quite recent, or uh, a few years ago he was on Mark Maron's WTF podcast, episode 565. That's if you... uh, We're hoping to get a more straightforward overview of Paul as a film director. My conversation with him is probably more waffly than either of those two that I just mentioned. But if you're a fan of his, I hope you'll find it interesting and entertaining. Nevertheless, I had a good time. Before I go any further, Podcast 63B, waiting for you right now in the giant podcast bin, is a special bonus episode and it contains a shorter conversation than this one with Radiohead's Johnny Greenwood. And it was Johnny who first introduced me to Paul Thomas Anderson at a Radiohead show in Los Angeles back in 2008 at the Hollywood Bowl, no less. It was an exciting star-studded evening. I was stood behind Rosanna Arquette and... uh, Who else was there? That's all I can remember. I was very impressed by Rosanna Arquette. Anyway, um, that's where I first met Paul Thomas Anderson very briefly. And it was shortly after Johnny's first collaboration with Paul on There Will Be Blood. Johnny wrote the score for that film, of course. And his most recent score for Phantom Thread has been nominated for an Academy Award. And Johnny told me briefly how... 
that score came together as well as responding to my suggestions for possible Oscar acceptance speeches and we also reminisced a little bit about the late Mark E. Smith of The Fall and at the end of that podcast Johnny plays the piano it's very short but it is amazing in a way like me but right now let me tell you a little bit more about this episode My rambly conversation with Paul Thomas Anderson took place at the end of January of this year, 2018, when he was in London doing press for Phantom Thread. In case you're not aware, the film stars Daniel Day-Lewis as Reynolds Woodcock, a top dressmaker in 50s London who is uptight and controlling to the point of monstrosity. This is my description not the official one. One day he meets Alma, a young woman played by Luxembourg native Vicky Creeps. Didn't know how to pronounce her surname until Paul told me in this podcast. And it is Alma, her character, that stands up to Woodcock the way no woman has done before, with the possible exception of Woodcock's sister and uh, business partner Cyril played in the film by Leslie Manville. She's fantastic. They're all very good, I must say. Anyway, I asked Paul whether it's okay to laugh at Daniel Day-Lewis and whether his character's intolerance of minor irritations is something that Paul shares. We also talked about the work and family balancing act. We talked about dads. And uh, we talked about some British comedy friends that we have in common. But I began by attempting to gauge Paul's Oscar excitement levels. I'll be back at the end of the podcast for more solo rambling. But right now, here we go. You've been nominated before, right? I have I've been a bridesmaid, never a bride, yeah. like many, many times. So I'm an also-ran, yeah. as they say. <laughs> but that's okay. It's nicer to be on the sidelines. Come on. Yeah. You don't want the curse of winning. <laughs> you know, when you sit there and you're looking, and luckily I, I've always kind of known I wasn't going to win. Maybe on There Will Be Blood there was a slight possibility because I was nominated. I had three different nominees. I thought... We're not going to win Best Picture. Maybe like they dole out like a screenplay thing. And you're watching people get up there and the fear that grips you to think, if I have to get up there, I fucking have no idea how this is going to go. Like, I mean, really like dry mouth. Like the possibility of having to, to do it is so, it's so fucking scary. Yeah. You know, and you see people get up there so smooth and George Clooney getting up there just like nothing. Like his heart beat is... is always the same yeah but he's a pro athlete you know it's not he's a clear it's not my venue yes but well, i hope you... johnny has to get up on a stage wouldn't that yeah, be hilarious wouldn't that be great 
He he has been nominated before, right? No. Is he not? No. First time. First time. It was a big um, controversy because he was turned down for eligibility on There Will Be Blood because part of that score he had written before the film. And so on a technicality, they fucking edged him out. Yeah, there was a big furor about that. I mean, a people were still angry about that one. A little hoo-ha. Mate. <laughs> Have you heard from Johnny since he's gotten nominated for his Oscar? Yeah, I, I emailed him. And I should have emailed you as well. I, I'm never sure if like, the, the etiquette with sort of saying congratulations to people about their work or whatever, if they're quite well known, you know, because I just sort of think, oh, they probably dismiss it or they don't want <laughs> right. to hear it or it sounds right. like toadying or I don't know, you know. Yeah, yeah. But when I saw the film, which is great, by the way, and congratulations, as soon as we sat down and that theme started up, I was hooked in immediately and I thought, wow, this is instantly memorable. This is like a classic theme, you know. What were your instructions to him for creating it? Be, like, romantic. Be lush. Be big. Don't be afraid to be romantic. Because he'll always say things like, what if we, like, the smallest sound? <laughs> like, no. That's a terrible idea. There's something, <laughs> he's always trying to shrink things. Uh-huh. Matt Damon. <laughs> <laughs> He's always downsizing, Johnny. <laughs> I think his instinct is probably to keep things simple. And I think my instinct sometimes is like, no, let's be epic. Come on, let's yeah. try it. And I think we, we meet somewhere good in the middle. But I was always pushing for more romantic stuff, more romantic. And like, you just like suck him in with some romance, you know? Yeah. Suck him in with something that's like sort of lush and opulent. But, but it's good because his character is in there too, you know? It's not a sort of anonymous... It ain't just cool. Yeah. It sounds like Johnny Greenwood. Yeah, he can never not be himself. Mm. <laughs> I mean, as stonery as that sounds. And that's why it's fun to push him in a, a, you know, or suggest things. It's funny, I just got an email from him. They're doing all the Oscar-nominated scores at Disney Hall, and his instinct was to play the slowest, most boring, maudlin cue that, that he wrote. <laughs> I was like, no, you're not playing that. We're playing the big romantic one yeah. that everybody likes. Play the hits. <laughs> exactly. Play Creep. Exactly. Yes, we're playing the <laughs> Creep because that's what everybody wants to hear. Yeah. They don't want to hear the boring slow one. Were you a Radiohead fan before you started working with Johnny? Presumably, yes. Yes. And what was the stuff that you really loved at that point? <sighs> I'm in the category of all of it. You know, there was never anything that confused me. I just followed them where they went. Do you see this short film that somebody made that was this sort of support group? I think it was when King of Limbs came out. And it was just a bunch of people sitting around in a circle, and they go, well, thank, I'm, hi, I'm Paul. Thanks for coming, Paul. You know, what is it? And they're like, yeah, I just, I just don't get King of Limbs. You know, I'm oh. sorry. You know? And then it go, as it goes around, people start oh, to... Sur- I did see that. <laughs> start, yeah. They raise their hand like, I didn't understand Kid A, you know? Yeah. And then it gets to somebody saying, listen, I gotta admit, I didn't understand OK Computer. I don't understand what was going on. And then finally somebody says, like, I didn't really like Creep. And they all turn. <laughs> like, what did you say? <laughs> but I suppose I've, I've, whatever was happening, I followed and was inspired by from always, really. Some of my friends, when a band puts out something that they don't think is up to the right standard, they just eviscerate them, you know? <laughs> I'm like, I thought you were a fan. Give him a, give him a break. 
That's nice, though, you incite that kind of riot in people's minds about what you should or shouldn't be doing. I suppose know. so, yeah. What's your uh, king of limbs in your filmography, then? <laughs> I'm sure many people would call um, Inherent Vice the king of limbs, like, what the fuck was that? Why do you think? Because it was sort of tonally so different? Probably. I mean, that was the movie that certainly seemed like the most people were scratching their heads about, either in the reviews or in the actual audiences. I mean, we did get good reviews, and we, you know, we thought, oh, this is all right, it's, it's looking good. And then you would hear reports of, like, mass walkouts in the theater, like, after an hour, an hour and a half, people just walking out. That had read a review saying it's a great movie, you should go see it. Yeah. It's, like, mm. it's a laugh riot. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, there's a lot of funny stuff in your films. I remember the first time I met you years ago, There Will Be Blood had come out. You know, I really loved the film, but I thought it was very funny. Mm-hmm. And I thought a lot of the lines in there and the way that Daniel Day-Lewis delivered them was really hilarious. And the comedy that I like most is people saying things in a strange way a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Funny voices. Mm-hmm. That's all it takes to cheer me up. <laughs> and he's got a real genius for that. And so on the one hand, obviously, there's a lot of very tragic and moving stuff. The relationship with his son is so heartbreaking. But then it culminates in these scenes where he's just bellowing these mad things the whole milkshake scene, mm-hmm. you know, and he's got this kind of crazy voice, which is on the verge of parody anyway, and it's fun to impersonate, and then he's saying this crazy stuff. I drink your milkshake. I drink it up! And it was so fun to say it and watch it, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> you must be aware of, of that, right? Or is that insulting? <laughs> I didn't think it was funny at all when we were doing it. Did you really not? No, I did. Of course okay. I did. I mean, I'm I'm probably a good director and a bad director because I'm a good audience for, and I will start laughing. I remember that day laughing and stifling it. and But he can hear me laughing, so it's probably only egging him on mm-hmm. to get bigger. <laughs> Does he not get angry? He doesn't say, I'm trying in my zone! <laughs> I need silence, the kind of Daniel Day-Lewis version of Christian Bale freaking out <laughs> about the guy in his eye line. No, I think I, pro- I... One time it happened on this one, and he's so used to my laughing that I started laughing, and he... So he started to laugh a little bit when he was meant to be very serious. He was like, right, out. And I said, I know. And I just... I had to leave the room, so I went into the hallway and let him and Leslie get on with this scene. And figure, I'll just see it when they're done. Because I, I guess there's a few type of people in the world. And I, I am one of those that once he starts laughing, I can't stop. And the tears start coming. In that bowling alley, that felt absurd and great. But you had like a little bit more Al Pacino in the beginning. When you do I Drink Your Milkshake, it sounds exactly right. But <laughs> before it was a little bit scent of a ha Okay, yeah. yeah. No, that's true. <laughs> but that's my American ear. I'm like, you're, you're, wait. <laughs> I'm finished! Is that no, what he no. says at the end? Yeah, but do it again. Is I'm finished. It's less I'm finished. declamatory, isn't it? I'm finished. <laughs> was that always going to be the last line? Did you know that that was going to yeah. be such a peach of a last that's line? In the, that's, that's in the script, yeah. And did you have an idea of how he would deliver it? My idea was completely different. My idea was it was much more internal, like, 
some, something out of breath. Yeah. And kind of to himself. And he did it the opposite. And it took me a minute. I think I remember saying to him, like, maybe just try one. This sort of goes inside a little bit. And he's like, okay. And he went even bigger. <laughs> <laughs> he went even louder. You have to understand the absurdity of being in that bowling alley, which was that you look around and you have all these, these grips and electric walking around either in their socks or with little like booties on mm -hmm. over their shoes to keep the floor clean yeah. and immaculate. And to just imagine the picture stepping back a bit with seeing all these gorillas with in their socks and trying to walk carefully around Daniel with a bowling pin and Paul Dana with blood all over the place and two of the most absurd days of my life but really really fun in this basement bowling alley coming back to daniel's performance and the comedy elements mm -hmm. i mean i was delighted that there was a lot of that same enjoyment in phantom thread which again is it's a serious film overall it's not a comedy but there are very funny moments and again he does a great voice he like meryl streep i think right can do these voices which are really on the verge of caricature and you can still invest in that character as a real person, not, yeah. not just a caricature. Yeah. And so he does another one. It's, it's much softer in Phantom Thread, the character. Who named him Woodcock? He did. Where there are other names on the table. Arthur Dapple. Uh -huh. But that was when it was a generic character name. I didn't, wasn't sure if he was English or not. He was just this guy named Arthur Dapple. And then that was clearly like, right, so we need something else. And he came up with it. Yeah, so that's funny already. That's funny already. And then he's got his sort of soft voice. And then he's, uh, which I can't do a good impression. Come on, you can do it. I'm sure you can do it. He's at the, he, there's a scene where he meets Alma, who is the star of the film, really, played by Vicky. How do you pronounce her name? Creeps. Creeps. She's amazing. And she's working in a, uh, a little restaurant tea room or something on the British coast. But he orders breakfast from her. Yeah. And it's this mad breakfast that he orders. A Welsh rarebit. Right. With a poached egg on top. Not too runny. Bacon. Scones. Jam. Not <laughs> strawberry. <laughs> tea. Do you have lapsang? Yes. A pot of lapsang. And some sausages. <laughs> That's right. It's like Mr. Creosote. <laughs> Do you ever see uh, The Meaning of Life, the Monty Python? Yes, film? yes, yeah. yes. Oh, it, I couldn't. Is that his name, Mr. Creosote? Yeah. Shove it in. <laughs> but, um, but he's not like that. He's, he's very neat and dapper and tidy. And yet he orders this crazy breakfast. You feel as if it's going to go on and on and on. That was a classic case of trying not to laugh. And he... Just one combination of him saying cream and butter perfectly landed. And I felt myself about to go, about to laugh out loud and blow the take. And maybe he felt me doing that. And he realized just how perfectly he landed cream and butter back to back. And he laughed. He broke. <laughs> Which is always the best when you get Daniel to break. You're like, yes. I think a lot of that stuff is based on when we st were writing There Will Be Blood, we would get together for breakfast. And that is a close approximation of my breakfast order. Like, I would order these monumental breakfasts, and he was always so impressed and would laugh at me 
it's just become absurd joke between us now. It's like these large breakfast orders. Yes. I eat the breakfast of like 10 men. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know what it is. And then I don't really eat the rest of the day. I don't eat meat, but I, yeah, when, in the days when I used to, it would be bacon, sausages. What's his voice like? Can you do his voice in Phantom Thread? Sort of very soft and precise, yes. isn't it? But it's not that not sibilant. Not strawberry. Not, stro- not strawberry. 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 Not strawberry. And um, <laughs> I'd like a brisket of veal uh, served on top of two eggs that have been teased very badly and they're inside a hamburger with a Snickers coming out of the top. But the Snickers needs to be very slightly melted and there should be an angry girl nearby <laughs> who steals the Snickers. <laughs> uh-huh. That sounds good. It's <laughs> well for the DVD. Actually. Do you have a blooper reel on there? I could do a, quite a collection of Daniel's blooper reel. We do have one that I think it's on YouTube that, of him making himself laugh. Oh, okay. On, uh, There'll be blood. Oh, I'll seek that out. It's 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 really good. I I can't remember what it's called, but it's a deleted scene, an outtake from There'll Be Blood, where he he makes it through the whole take without laughing, but as soon as cut is called, he, you just see him collapse. With enjoyment at <laughs> his own insanity. It's really kind of great. So you said that you were sat down talking, having breakfast with him while you were writing. Is that because you write in collaboration with him in those circumstances? Well, we did this one. We did this one. The, on There Will Be Blood, I wrote it and then went to him. And we would just to, to work on fixing the script up or messing it around we would get breakfast every morning and then so but this one was like a proper collaboration on the script from the very beginning like i had a basic premise went to him told him the basic premise went away wrote a few pages gave him those pages wrote some more went back and there was enough of the story that he really started to come in with ideas what about this what about this what about this went to Ireland, sat around his kitchen table, and really kind of, at a certain point, we really needed to finish. It was like, right, let's get all the way to the end. And we did that together. And so he had an appreciation already for that world in a way, doesn't he? Because, like, I mean, he makes shoes, yes? So, yes. So it, I, that's like in the fashion universe. Yeah. And that attention to a craft like that. He's good with his hands. Mm. He, yes, he did studied. Shoemaking, what do you call it? Um, uh, co- cobblering. Cobblering. Cobbling. Yes, he was. Cobblerism. Um, he made a great table. He's a carpenter. I think he's getting ready for, for the Ballad of Jack and Rose. Film. He makes furniture too, Harrison Ford style. He made a table. He made a damn good table. Did he? He's Daniel Day Lewis. Yeah, the, yeah. Come on. All right. Sorry. <laughs> Can he fit a tap in our kitchen? Because it's really becoming a problem, and we can't get a plumber who'll do a decent job. He could probably do it. Like, give him six months. <laughs> He'd figure out how to do it really well. <laughs> he can do anything. Yeah. Yeah, so he has a predilection for that kind of thing, and he can work with his hands. But then I guess making shoes is different than sewing garments. I suppose. So, you know, I mean, yeah. But he, so. but he studied the whole garment-creating thing as well, right? Yeah, he went to study with the New York City Ballet. So he would go, he was basically in an intern costume department. Right. He'd go up every day with his, like, bag of lunch, sit there and learn how to do it all. 
Wow. Yeah, amazing. That's the, that's the most enviable part, I think, about someone with a career like that, that they can really immerse themselves in all these alternate realities the way that their lives might have gone. Or totally, whatever. totally. How fun would it be to sort of, that, that's your job. Like, right, you get to go work with the New York City Ballet for a year. You get to turn up at 9 o'clock, you know, punch out at 5 o'clock. Yeah. Right, let's go again. What don't you fucking understand? Kick your fucking ass! Let's go again! What the fuck is it with you? I want you off the fucking set, you prick! No! You're a nice guy! What the, the fuck are you doing? No! Don't shut me up! No! No! Ah, uh, da 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 like this! No! No! Don't shut me up! Ah, uh, da 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 like this! Fuck's sake, man, you're amateur! Seriously, man, you and me, we're fucking done professionally. I like those scenes with Woodcock at the breakfast table when uh, he's in the early stages of his relationship with Alma and uh -huh. she's buttering her toast and it's unbearable for him how noisy it is. But whereas I, in that situation, might get irritated but wouldn't say anything because I would think it was just indefensible, he actually says, you know, it's like a group of stampeding horses or something that she's buttering her toast. But w w where does that uh, fascination come from? Is that something that irritates you about other people or something you see in yourself or, or what? Buttering toast like well, that? Just being or annoyed just by those things, um, being uptight about that stuff. I have some of that, um, not to the extreme that he does for sure, but um, I guess I have the basic ones that everybody has, like chewing gum loud, mm -hmm. that kind of thing which I'm guilty of doing. What about if someone, if you're on a train and someone makes a loud phone call? That's punishable. That's... Yeah. Right. Why haven't people got that memo? Fuck if I... I mean, and what's even worse now is FaceTiming. Public FaceTime? I haven't seen too much of that. Oh, I have. Is and that... I've, I've been guilty of doing it. Yeah, somebody in a restaurant. Do you moderate <laughs> your tone at least, though? I can't really talk. I'm on the... I'm in a restaurant right now. Uh, or, uh, yeah. Or are you a loud talker? Uh, <laughs> I, I think that I'm an accidental loud talker on the telephone. I think that I'm talking quietly, yeah. but judging by my wife's reaction, it's like, you're really loud right now. Yeah, okay. I, my volume goes way up when I get on the phone. Does yours? No. It goes down? Yeah, because I'm just so, I'm just a little wormy, man. I just want to... <laughs> I don't want to be noticed. So if someone... No, if I'm in a restaurant... I will, I will talk very quietly yeah. like that. But if I'm, let's say, just with somebody that I know and we're in a private space like this and the phone rang, I would accidentally, the volume of my voice would jump. Did you ever see Trigger Happy TV in the US? Uh, it was a big show in the UK in the 90s, a guy called Tom Jolly and one of his recurring characters in this sort of sketch slash prank show that he would do was a bloke on a mobile phone in the street. And it was really at the dawn of mobile phone ubiquity. Mm -hmm. But he nailed, he, or at least he was the first to nail that, that, that annoying trope. And he had a giant mobile phone, like crazily <laughs> massive. Mm -hmm. And he would walk around and he'd be in the middle of a shopping center or a restaurant <laughs> or wherever it was. And the phone would ring, the Nokia ringtone, and he would go, Hello! Oh, I can't talk now! I'm in a restaurant! Yup! And it would be like that, and that was it. I sort of thought when I saw that, like, that's good. At least people are going to get the message now. Right. But they didn't. <laughs> it's like they saw that character and thought, oh yeah, that's a good thing to do. 
apparently it's okay to do that. <laughs> yeah. But the other thing has happened is people having invisible devices with Bluetooth and things in the ear, so they're having full-blown conversations without seeing a phone, small or big. Yeah. That's really fucking annoying. It's, I mean, I'd go full woodcock on that as well. Like. Definitely. <laughs> People wandering around, just sort of gazing into the air. And I remember the first time I ever saw it, you know, and you think, oh, that's sad. You know, oh, there's a mad person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then you realize they're on the phone and then you want to kill them. <laughs> the thing, I read a book the other day by a guy called Danny Wallace about politeness and it's quite a good book and he rather than just being a litany of beefs and peeves he sort of tries to analyze why certain things are irritating and he goes into the phone thing and the thing that's irritating he says about the phone call on the train is that it's just one side of the call you're hearing Mm -hmm. and as human beings we usually are able to screen out conversations that are not relevant to us and Mm -hmm. focus on the ones we're actually engaged with but we do that only if we can hear both sides. Mm-hmm. So if there's two people standing in a bar and they're having a chat, you can screen it out because you're aware that it's those two people. But if it's just one person, mm-hmm. your brain sort of short circuits. It does not compute. <laughs> I must listen carefully because I cannot hear the other side of the conversation. So I must strain to hear the one I can hear right. even more. You know what I mean? Um, is he a British writer? Yeah. He wrote Yes Man. The right. Jim Carrey thing. Right. Yeah. He's a nice guy. The best joke in Yes Man was when he... Didn't he hook up with like a Harry Potter group? And they watch the, all the Harry Potter movies back to back. Oh, okay. <laughs> so he has to say yes. So he has to watch every Harry Potter movie in a row. And they get to the end and they say guys want to do it again (laughs) one of the finest jim carrey moments is him saying yes for the second time to watch them all back to back by the way along with i mean the unfortunate thing is like at the oscars when they do like the history of movies you know they do those great things where you and usually end it starts you've got charlie chaplin you've got the great train robbery and it usually ends with like E.T. flying across the moon, right? Mm-hmm. Is that never will they include Jim Carrey coming out of the rhinoceros's ass, right? Or in Ace Ventura in, in 2. In Ace Ventura 2, which is like... <laughs> if they ever had the guts to include it, it is one of the finest... You're absolutely right, in my estimation. The first 20 minutes of that film are fucking amazing. Yep. When Jim Carrey's on form, he's hard to beat. Every time um, Liar Liar comes on TV, I'll give that a watch. Yep, me too. Cable Guy? Cable Guy, I haven't seen for ages. That's a bit like something you'd make, though. It's got a strange tone to it. Judd Apatow wrote that. Oh, did he? And Ben Stiller directed it. Right. And it was considered a kind of a bomb at the time. He had been on a streak. He'd been on this real winning streak with, was it Dumb and Dumber? Yeah. Mask? And Ace Ventura. Yeah, three biggest films of that year. Like, straight away, like, big ones, each one bigger than the last. And then Cable Guy came, and it was so fucking peculiar. Kind of a bit more like Carrie, you know, like, really dark and nuts. And, yeah, people didn't go for it. But look back at it, it is brilliant. There's another movie he made, Judd Apatow wrote, that nobody knows called Heavyweights. I don't know. It's about uh, Fat Kids Camp. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Already it's... 
Watch out. Come on, mate. It's called heavyweight. Get with the times. It's great. <laughs> Presumably a lot of those Farrelly Brothers movies, which were un-PC at the time, are now completely... Right. I don't know. I haven't watched Can you them imagine them trying to go... Um, me, Myself, and Irene? Yeah. That's a fantastic movie. Yeah, it's got some very funny stuff in it as well, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. But that, that was their MO, wasn't it? To be insensitive, at least superficially, about some of those issues. Yeah. It'd be funny to see them applying their talents to... Hashtag me too and all those sorts of things. Yeah, the Farley brothers, here they come. Yeah. I mean, I guess two <laughs> straight white blokes probably wouldn't be best positioned to tackle some of that material. Yeah. Is that an area that uh, makes you think, oh, yeah, that's a good script? Uh, me, me too, yeah. or Farley brothers? Mm-mm, no. What's it like in Hollywood in, in that climate? Do you feel as if things have fundamentally shifted? The biggest thing was like, Pay Gap, that really sort of started a bunch of years back. That was gigantic. It was like, how the fuck are you going to justify paying Jennifer Lawrence and Amy? I think it was on that film. I think it was on American Hustle, right? It became a big deal. It sort of all started to come out. And even recently, there was another huge pay gap. Controversy yeah, reshoots for all the money in the world. Wasn't right. It? It's weird, though, to, to square a lot of the stuff with the way that showbiz works anyway i mean it's so ridiculous a lot of the stuff quite apart from harassment sexism anything like that just the the whole pathetic way that status is negotiated you know to the extent that on movie posters you can have one actor's name higher than the others like by a couple of centimeters or something and it's a big deal the most prestigious place on the poster is to have your name on the left at the top of the poster even if the photograph above that name is not of the actor and all those sorts of things you know what i mean i fucking know all too well what you mean <laughs> did you see wag the dog yeah do you know it well? No, years that, ago. I saw it when it came that out. That really says everything, the, the fantastic way that it unfolds and it ends. You're Dustin Hoffman's Hollywood producer character, right, who produces and orchestrates a, a fake war to distract from oh, yeah. a real sex scandal that's happening at home, right? And by the end of it, you know, obviously it's all clandestine and meant to be, you know, no one's supposed to know that this is happening. But by the end of it, he cannot resist. His fatal flaw is, I need to get credit for this. Uh, right? Yeah. And, and De Niro is saying, yeah, I don't think you understand. There's, there's no, this didn't happen. We didn't do this. He's, and and, and doesn't Hoffman, that's the Hollywood producer, cannot understand. He's like, no, it's about the fucking credit. It's about the credit. Yeah. And presses it to the point where De Niro looks at him and thinks, well, we have to kill you now, you know? And that, and obviously you think that's what's next. You know, they don't show it, but you think that's what's next. Yeah. Which I think should be implemented more and more in Hollywood, like... <laughs> like <laughs> I'm sorry, but... If, we... if there are discussions, annoying discussions about credit, <laughs> or if you're taking credit for something you didn't do, you should be murdered. I'm afraid you're going to have to be killed. <laughs> but of course, now I can't watch Wag the Dog because of the allegations against Dustin Hoffman clouding my appreciation. What's your position on favourite films from the past that are now tainted with the bad behaviour of some of their lead actors? Can you still appreciate them or do you find it hard to separate those two things? Because of that, and that obviously that's now a, a big political choice for a lot of people is should you boycott certain films that may have been made 99% by totally blameless people and crew, but feature one performer who's supposedly done something awful. 
are you supposed to stay away from those films? I mean, I was brought up to believe that there was a, a, a difference between the art and the artist. Yeah. But now it's like people are saying, no. It's as simple as saying, if you're going to go and see that film, you are tacitly endorsing the bad behavior of that artist and, and ignoring the experience of their victims. You know. I'm going to lay that on you, Paul. It's getting heavy. <laughs> I mean... And then we're going to talk about farts. Look, <laughs> uh, I suppose that I have a hard time wrestling with Ilya Kazan's actions, you know? I'm talking about back then and yeah. naming names. Naming this names is, this is somebody yeah. who named names. I mean, the kind of the most, you know, the most unforgivable sin. You name names. You name names, man. Golly. But, um, good director. Fuck, I don't know. I mean, I like his films. Uh, if a similar situation was to happen now, would you have a different policy? I don't know. It's Things are clouded, you know. Things yeah. get clouded. It's hard not to, to, but yeah, time passes and then... Look, if we start looking behind the covers on every dark, dirty secret that anybody who's ever made a movie's done, I don't know. We're going to get down to like how many movies are going to we going to be able to watch? But mm, Paul Blart, Mall Cop Three, <laughs> <laughs> they were all nice on that, apparently. across this the other day Ernest Hemingway the writer who left a fairly considerable trail of destruction with some of his relationships yeah not least his three children he had one of them Gregory the youngest had a very troubled life and I mean there's a whole other story about his struggles to settle upon the right gender uh, he from an early point would dress up in women's clothes and some people say that Hemingway, his father, gave him a hard time because he was such a man-man, macho mm-hmm. man. And he's like, what are you doing dressing up as a woman? But actually, it seems that Hemingway was also having those same sort of impulses and same thoughts. Is that right? Yeah. And, uh, and maybe didn't treat his son as sensitively as he ought because, for that reason, because he was consumed by ambivalence and self-loathing because he had similar impulses. Ugh. Anyway, I don't know. But that's what I've sort of picked up a little bit. His son, though, at a certain point, Gregory wrote to his father, when it's all added up, Papa, it will be, he wrote a few good stories, had a novel and fresh approach to reality, and he destroyed five persons. Hadley, Pauline, Marty, Hemingway's third wife, Patrick, and possibly myself. Which do you think is the most important? Your self-centered shit, the stories, or the people? Can you imagine receiving that <laughs> letter? Or even writing it, though. You know, feeling that you had to write that. Right. That's pretty hardcore, isn't it? Um, it is and, and very a- hardcore. And heartbreaking. actually, probably Hemingway's truthful answer would have been the stories. 
like that's the most important thing that's mm. the that's the thing i can most usefully do which will connect meaningfully with the most number of people but it's such a horrible answer really you want the answer obviously to be the people are most important yeah but it's weird it's like you can't you wouldn't want a world without certain whether you like hemingway's books or not you know you would probably value those fairly highly, wouldn't you? Yeah, but that's ex- he's. I th- I don't know. That son's onto something. Like you know, it's bef- before when I was younger. You go through years of making a film, making something, and the exclusion, especially when you're younger, that the exclusion of sort of relationships that you have, friendships, and you're not you're not calling people back, you know, because you're so busy, so self-consumed with this thing, and you get to the end, and it's a fucking plastic DVD, and you're like, that's it. Right, and I remember realizing that, like, hang on a minute, let me just look back at this year and the relationships that I haven't maintained or I haven't kept up. There's got to be a way to do both things. You know, they don't cancel each other out. It's not like you can't be a good father, a good friend, a good husband, and make, to make this monumental creation. That's fucking horseshit, you know. Um, so you know when to clock off, do you? I'd like to think I do, you know, for sure. And, I mean, you've got four, right? Three. You've got three. Yeah. It's just practically the same. You've got four? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. What a madman. You're killing the planet. (laughs) Not if we downsize them. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Um, Yeah. Wow. So, so like, I mean, it's actually a really nice feeling when they're really mad at you for going to work. Like, what? Again? You just went to London. Can I go with you? <laughs> That's their next. Like, come on, take me with you. How old's the oldest? Twelve. Twelve. How old's your oldest? Uh, Fifteen. Okay, so you got a couple years on me. We got yeah. twelve, nine, uh, six, and four. Boys and girls. One boy. The rest, the three girls. Oh, okay. What do you have? Uh, one girl. And Two the, boys. The older ones are boys. Yeah, it's all getting pretty teenaged. Do you have Dark Nights of the Soul about? parenting of course who wouldn't yeah i mean i don't want a fucking letter like that ever coming across my desk oh mate i mean but on the other hand there has to be some moment you 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 have to embrace like i need you to fucking hate me at a certain point right i need you to kill me off that's there's got to be a handoff right that's a rite of passage but can we we've got to maintain and that's you've you got to give up and take it so I'm, I'm looking forward to the challenge, but my God, I mean, I, I would say my, my existence would be to make sure to not get a letter like that. Like, yeah. Fuck off. That's priority <laughs> number one, isn't it? Yes. But some children just seem pre-programmed to do the absolute opposite of everything you want or care about. <laughs> and they don't do it as a gesture of defiance necessarily. It's just that that's what they're naturally drawn to like what could be more boring and pointless than anything my parents do or want sure you know what i mean and i i I can remember that yeah just thinking everything my dad was saying to me i would just instantly ignore Mm -hmm. because you're my dad i love you but god you're boring Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) why would i want to do all the boring shit that you do but that's because he was into totally different stuff you know do you remember what some of those things would have been I mean, everything. His earliest attempts to sit down and read to me and the, the same impulses that I had, you know, you think, okay, I've got children. I'm now going to curate their tastes. Right. And introduce <laughs> them to all this brilliant stuff that I'm going to... This is a big responsibility, so I can't just chose any old stuff. <laughs> right, Paul Block, more cop, 
three, that's tomorrow. But today we're going to watch Ace Ventura 2. No, it wasn't just that. But, you know, what books you read to them and stuff. And I remember my dad sat down and, and he wanted to read me these books. Oh, what's the name of that guy? He writes all this naval fiction. Uh, is it even? It's not E.M. No, it's not E.M. Forster. Is it the stuff that Master and Commander was? Yeah, big, exactly. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. The, I, those are meant to be great, but I could, yeah, but it's an acquired. Yeah. <laughs> it's got all this super technical nautical jargon in it. Patrick? Patrick, yes, come on. Patrick Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> uh, should I go to the device that knows everything? Yeah, let's do it. Because oh. otherwise it's too shameful. I mean, it's, it's embarrassing that I can't remember. Patrick O'Brien. There you go. People Wait, also ask Can Russell Crowe play, actually play the violin? <laughs> the answer presumably is yes he's another day lewis style character isn't he rusty crow russell crow plays the violin in the film master and commander having been taught the instrument in three months by australian chamber orchestra leader richard tognetti there you go the two men describe the learning process in double acts the clip also features fellow actor paul bettany on the cello there you go Don't daniel's miss- not the only one who no who's committed although committed. russell only spent three months Daniel would have done it for <laughs> 10 years <laughs> before he was ready to do Something that you would appreciate that this reminds me of that I insist you find is, um, do you remember Lionel Richie dancing on the ceiling? Sure. Do you remember the music video? Okay, they took the premise. I can't remember what Fred Astaire movie it's in, but they turned the entire room upside down. Uh-huh. And Fred Astaire dances the entire time as it's turning and never loses his balance so it appears as if he's literally dancing on the ceiling. Ah, they Fred got the Astaire, whole set on right? a gimbal. The, the, the whole yeah. set's on a gimbal. Okay. So Lionel Richie recreates this and comes to the set. They have a behind the scenes, which may, may or not be on YouTube. And he comes to the set, gets out of his limo, and the director greets him, and he says, Two days. Two days. We're going to do what Fred Astaire did in third. It took him 30 days to learn. It took us two days. And then you see the video, and it should be called crawling on the ceiling because he, didn't, he doesn't dance on the ceiling. He crawls as the... So there's no dancing and there's no... It, 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 he just tumbles. He tumbles forward. As the room The turns. entire time. Yeah. Exactly. The way that any normal person would. Crawling on the ceiling. Yeah, Patrick O'Brien, though. And towards the end of his life, I was going to say that that my pa, he still had all these books. He's got all the Patrick O'Brien books. And I said, shall I read to you? And he's like, yeah, it's okay. So I start trying to read to him from Patrick O'Brien. And I get tripped up immediately on the jargon. (laughs) It's so dense, the nautical jargon. And so I wasn't really reading it too well. But I was thinking, you know, this is sort of nice. This is one of the few moments that actually is a little bit what I hoped might happen when I was looking after my dad in his last months, you know, me just reading to him. But then after a couple of pages, I just hear, and I look over and he's just going, stop, because I was murdering it. <laughs> he didn't want to go into the afterlife with no, no, you exactly. butchering his favorite book. Rubbish, <laughs> You can download an audio book. <laughs> That's but, good. But the thing is that I don't know if he remembered trying to read the same books to me when I was little, thinking that he would curate my literary right. tastes. 
And I just remember him reading those books and glazing over and just thinking, this is definitely the most boring <laughs> thing I've ever heard. This is nonsense. I couldn't understand a word of it. I was just, what? I guess I got lucky because my dad, what I inherited from him was his love of big band music, sort of standard singers, Ella Fitzgerald, Kitty Callan, Jack Teagarden, all these people, that style of music, which I still obsess over and listen to all the time. And that is, comes directly from him, but there was no choice. It wasn't, I don't know if he was trying to curate it for me, there was that we got in the car and that's what he turned on and he turned it on really loud. I don't remember if I liked it then or not, but once he was gone, I really started to love it as a way to be connected still to him. Yeah. And I think it's taken on a life of its own now. I hear it, I listen to so much of it. It's not as if it takes me back there anymore. It's, it's, it's my, my own connection to it. And when it comes on, of the four kids, I can tell the one who does like it, she really perks up and she listens to it. And the others, like, glaze over and they're like, put on Katy Perry. Yes, <laughs> you know, exactly. Like, put on Havana. Stop with this shit. And I remember my, my dad watched old movies and would put stuff on, and I would always be into what he put on mostly. But my sisters, phew, no, they were out of the room, did not want to see it. Yeah. You know what, though? I, I, the, the things that I cherish the most from my dad are items of clothing. Right. Those are things that you can really, I don't know. He wore this shirt. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, those are good. They're better than books and things and that he liked or anything i'm like there's a song by spoon called fitted shirt about exactly that is there yeah huh wearing his dad's shirts that fit right that's cool yeah i'd like to hear that We have a mutual friend who worked on Phantom Thread, Julia Davis. And she was very excited to get that part, I know. And, and we, as her friends, were like trying to get bits of information out of her, but she was very politic. Um, she did say, though, because she has a scene, a dinner party scene, and uh, she said, oh, I think I'm going to be cut out anyway. But, um, but no, she's not. She's, she's in there pretty well. <laughs> yeah. I showed her off a cut of the movie, and she's like, she just cut me out. Which is basically her way of saying, like, put more shit in. (laughs) (laughs) So I put more stuff in. How did you come across her stuff? Jam, YouTube, the, what was the thing she did with... um, Human Remains. Human Remains. Yeah. Human Remains was my first real entrance into Julia Davis land. How did you get into all that um, British stuff like Jam and Day to Day and all that? Probably Johnny, I think. Ah, right, Johnny Greenwood. Yeah. Right. Anyway, back to Julia. That's a funny household, too, Julian. I mean, Amazing. have you seen Flowers? Yeah, yeah. Flowers That's good. is fucking great. Did you like the bouche, though, or is that too mad for you? No, not at all. I loved it. Loved yeah. it. 
<laughs> I loved it. I haven't seen all of them. I mean, there's a lot of them. Yeah. Um, no, all that stuff is brilliant. He's a really good actor, Julian. Amazing. Yeah. They're making another Flowers, which I'm really excited about. But I'm, I'm like, what? Okay, let's, let's see what happens. Because I really thought that was such a fully formed, perfect thing. But So I'm, I'm, I'm excited for the next one. But I don't know, it's always nerve-wracking when somebody does something again. You're like, God, oh, it's got to be as good as the first. Olivia Coleman. Yeah. Fucking can't She's always long. good. Golly, She's Jesus. annoying. I know. I mean, money in the bank. Yeah. Amazing. And then, um, but yeah, Julia, I'd like to, tr- did you see camping? Sure. It was, that was fucking mad. Talk yeah. About, I mean, that went places nobody <laughs> else dares to go. So what's the, I mean, is she just like an unsung national treasure? I think everyone that likes comedy knows about her. Yeah. In this country. Yeah. But no, I suppose she's not totally mainstream. I guess the most mainstream she would have got would, would have been Gavin and Stacey, which was a massive crossover success. Right. But then... Was that the one stuff, with James Corden? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't really know that one. No, I never really got to grips with it. But yeah, she's like the queen of the left field, I suppose. Right. I don't know why exactly, because she could easily do mainstream stuff. She's very, very versatile. Can say um, that again. Yeah, I'd like to dream something up with her to do. You know, with that was it was unfortunate. It was only two days. We spent like some time writing out the scenes, or actually, I had her write it. Really, I was like, "Here's a couple of ideas. You write this out." I think that was the kind of thing going to somebody who's. It was a thin scene. There wasn't that much there, but I knew I needed some good firepower against Daniel, and I, so. But rather than, I know what it's like because I know people have called up Maya. And said, just oh, this and- is your partner? Yes. Yeah. Who so is just a, a, Maya Rudolph. A, an actor. Yeah, she was, was very funny. One was, of the funniest yeah. films in the world. Absolutely. Yeah. But people will call her up and say, just come be funny. Right. And it's like, oh, fuck, hang on. Like, what's the plan? You know, like, oh, no, 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 you just, just improvise something. And, you know, that doesn't work like that. So yeah. with Julia, I was really paranoid about it. I was like, I haven't really written this out. I don't want to throw you to the wolves. And she was really paranoid, too, about, like, you can't, I, can't, I can't have a scene with Daniel and just start improvising. But what she was wrong about was that you could, you know. So we had a, a small thing written and just started to go. And you could see the nerves melt away on her pretty quickly. She was like, right, I can, keep, I can actually keep this going. Um, and it was chaotic, too, because there was all these non-actors around. Yes, she said that, that, that Daniel had some of his friends there. Yes. And there was the guy who was the owner of the house that we shot at down on the Cotswolds, who's not an actor. So that mix was really good. It just kept the ball constantly in the air. So these actors, these non-actors are, it's just curveball after curveball. They don't know any rules of improvising. They're just flowing and making left turns left and right and yeah and from a technical point of view presumably they're doing things that you won't be able to use and absolutely looking down the camera or whatever it might be all the time so God. but you have to just keep looking for the moments that you you do need you know so yeah it turned into a uh, it turned into a full-blown jazz odyssey <laughs> in and front how, of a festival crowd and, and daniel's fine with that is he yeah yeah he doesn't sort of go, no, I can't tolerate this. I can't. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I like that impression of him. That's Paul, can I have a word? I want a tiny ballet dancer on top of two cheeseburgers with 
an egg being carried by a clown to be brought into my room to make up for the farce that was that last scene. <laughs> This is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area. And spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com/buxton for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code Buxton to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. Continue. Milkshake. I drink it up. Rosie, come here, doggles. Look at your eyes, they're crazy. I'm wearing a head torch, and when it shines into Rosie's eyes, they look like green lasers shining in the night, or a kind of demon of restricted height. A tiny doggy demon jumping up and down. Rosie, that's the end of my song. Sorry if it was offensive. Rose, come here, let's go home, it's freezing cold. Rosie, come on. I want to go over here. I really wouldn't recommend it. It's dark. Mum doesn't like it when you go off. Here, yeah, good girl. No, over here, Rose. We're heading back. Is that okay? But we didn't go for a long walk today. I know, I'm sorry. We'll, we'll do one tomorrow. Come on, let's head back. Anyway, welcome back, listeners. Paul Thomas Anderson there. What a charming, down-to-earth man. I got the sense that he's not the kind of person that particularly enjoys dissecting his films and talking about how they're made and what they mean and all that sort of stuff. I'm sure he has done so before, but I didn't feel that I was going to be the guy to do that particularly well, so we just ended up having a nice rambly convo. But I hope you uh, got something out of it. I'm going to uh, say my thank yous just a bit before the very end of the podcast today. Thanks, obviously, to Paul. Thanks to Seamus Murphy-Mitchell for his production support, invaluable as ever. Uh, And to Matt Lamont for additional editing. Now, Daniel Day-Lewis has supposedly retired from acting. He announced that he wasn't going to do any more acting after he finished Phantom Thread. And I read one piece that said he was just very sad and he was experiencing great sadness, which is a shame. I didn't know that before I spoke to Paul, otherwise I might have asked him, although I'm not sure if it's something that Paul would particularly uh, care to talk about. (laughs) I am disappointed, though, that Daniel Day-Lewis hasn't used his retirement to 
get really good at plumbing, as I suggested, and come and fix our kitchen tap. I mean, it really is quite a nightmare, which has gone on for around six months. And I know there are other serious problems that people have to deal with in the world, but I don't think they're worse than this, because it's really, I mean, it really is dripping. And making quite a lot of noise as well, grumbling, whining, groaning, that kind of thing. On the upside, it's a brilliant resource for avant-garde composers. I'll take my hand off the handle and immediately we begin to get some beautiful sounds. The tap is saying, why is it so hard to get a plumber to actually just change the tap? Someone was supposed to come last week, but they ordered the wrong tap. by these sounds deep down in the ground of the pipes in the house the guts of the house groaning thank you there we go kitchen tap symphony for you you're welcome that's pretty much it for the podcast this week but don't forget to check out Podcast 63B, your bonus podcast with Johnny Greenwood, available right now in the giant podcast bin. And I will be back next week with yet another Oscar-nominated director talking to me about their latest film. That's Greta Gerwig, with whom I spoke recently about her film Lady Bird, which is also a terrific film. Uh, We also talked about other bits and pieces. That was a fun chat. And yes, if all goes to plan, that'll be out next week. And then I promise that uh, the next few guests on the podcast will not be Oscar-nominated American directors. Unless Jordan Peele decides to get back to me. But so far, no response from the Peele camp. (laughs) He's someone I'd love to have on the podcast. If you know Jordan Peele, give him a shout. Wow, look at my breath. My breath is being illuminated by my head torch in the dark. And because it's so cold, it's as if I'm vaping. Except my breath doesn't smell like strawberries currently. It smells like victory. Only joking. Smells of farts. (laughs) Okay, take care, listeners. I love you. Bye!